For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How are you doing? Now, if you're listening to this on or just before or just after January the 26th and you happen to be in Australia, you'll know that it's known variously as Australia Day, Invasion Day, Survival Day, and it's officially but divisively the country's national holiday. Why? Because Or why is it divisive? Because it's the date when, in 1788, the first fleet arrived in Sydney, beginning colonisation. So it's obviously problematic to tie up, I don't know, a day off work and a fun party at the beach with this traumatic legacy that dispossessed First Nations people. Hence the hashtag, change the date. And the question, why not celebrate another time? Because there is cause for celebration around national identity. It's when, for example, community leaders get honoured. And what else? What about ceremonies for new citizens? I always think of planting trees if you are newly arrived in this country and become an Aussie. But that said, not everybody does agree on change the date. I mean, forget the liberal politicians and the, I don't know, the people who are obsessed with, this is my right to be on the beach having a barbie on this day. Forget that. But consider this. I was reading an NITV op-ed by the radio host Bo Spearham. He's a Gamilaray and Kuma man. And he wrote that for him, the day is significant. Marches on this day shine a spotlight on the unhealed wounds that have been inflicted on Aboriginal people, he wrote. And he reckons that the progressive, in inverted commas, notion that we should just switch the day of celebration is too simplistic. But that said, did you know that January 26 didn't become the national holiday until 1994? So what do you think? For me, as a foreigner, I'm still trying to navigate this, but I do find the whole concept of my right to a day off to sink beers on the 26th of January really jarring when you consider the history and context. As for the show, last year I didn't mark January 26 on the podcast, but the year before my guest was the wonderful Indigenous Australian Belinda Duarte. She's the founder of Culture is Life, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that one again. It's episode 134, and we'll share a link. But this year, I'm bringing you an interview that just made sense to me to run at this time. It's about two Australian things definitely worth celebrating And it doesn't matter where you're listening to this around the world, because I think these themes are just really inviting. And they are eucalyptus trees and multiculturalism. My guest is Simone Sanixay. She's a natural dyes expert, an organic gardener. She's my friend. She always brings me bags of vegetables when she comes to visit that she's grown herself. She's also the co-founder of Eastern Weft, which is an amazing weaving cooperative based in Vientiane in Laos. Simone came here to Australia with her parents as a kid. They were refugees. Today, she's married to a Norwegian. She's got beautiful Aussie kids. And I love how she talks about bringing cultures together and finding our common humanity. In her case, as with so many others, it's through craft and food and also our connection with nature. So this is the story of Simone's epic adventure to map Australia through a colour study of its eucalyptus dyes. 
By the way, if you're looking for an alternative day to get excited about, (laughs) Australia has a National Eucalypt Day. It's March the 23rd. Welcome to the podcast, Simone. I'm really happy that we're doing this. We're actually friends. It's not often that friends come on the show. Thanks for having me, Claire. It's been ages, you know, since I've seen you and, uh, you know, what an honour to be on the wardrobe I've actually been trying to lure you on here for years, haven't I? Threatening (laughs) you with it. So we're going to do it. We're going to have a lovely conversation about Mm -hmm. natural dyeing, Mm -hmm. about weaving, which is... I just can't wait to hear some of these stories about weaving in Laos and about East and West. But we're also going to talk about what you've recently been doing. Before we begin, why don't you tell us, what is it that you do? So Claire, I'm, well, I've been a weaver, I'm a textile designer, a gardener, and I run a weaving house that supports young women in Laos, all to do with natural dyeing. And actually, (laughs) I do just want to share with people that I attended, you're also a teacher, even though you say that you're not, but you are. Um, You're a sharer of knowledge and you run a lot of wonderful workshops about natural dyeing. And I went to one of them at Sydney Community College where we were beginners. It was several hours and it was rad. But being beginners, I guess we started it the most tactile and the easiest thing. We flower pounded and it was quite violent. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. What, you gave us hammers. Yes, I did. We went and foraged for leaves and flowers that were soft enough for pounding. And then we placed them on bits of calico, placed another piece of calico on top, just because if we started, you know, pounding them, they, they'd fly away everywhere. And uh, But we were yeah. in this big old building and we we're outside on the landing, yep. wooden floors, and yes. we just beat them to death with with hammers. Yes. We didn't beat them to death, though. We beat them into a new form. Yes, a new form of art. And then they came out as imprints into the cloth. And the other thing, I think we had um, a a yoga or meditation below us, so we got in trouble for... Was Kirsten holding a yoga (laughs) class underneath? That's a mutual friend from Fashion Revolution. Yes, yes, there was. Or they they didn't think about... um, yeah, all the classes and which, you know, rooms they would go in. So we got some complaints on Monday. We're recording this in Sydney in December of 2022. And it's uh, the end of a year that has seen you travel all around the country mm-hmm. as part of something called Eucalypt Australia Dahl Fellowship. Yes, Biana Dahl. Mm-hmm. And what they say is that it provides an opportunity for talented and deserving Australians to undertake a project related to eucalypts that is not readily fundable elsewhere. Okay, who was Mr. Dahl? Uh, so Bjorn Dahl, he was a Norwegian forester who was invited to come to Australia by the Department of Forestry in uh, Victoria as a forest assessor and surveyor for the government. And before that, they only employed um, British, maybe botanists from Oxford or something, but they couldn't afford them. But, and Is so, that right? Yes, after he World War One. Yes, well, Seriously? the three Norwegians, yes. But, but the bonus was that uh, the Norwegians, they all have military training. So if they get lost, then the Victorian government wouldn't have to send out a search party. Are you serious? That they'd find bonkers. their way back to Melbourne. Really? Yeah. Okay, this was in 1928 when he came here, he was 30. Yeah. I Googled him. Essentially, 
Victoria's incredible eucalypts were being logged and still being Mm. logged for the timber industry. And until that point, they hadn't been mapped, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So the Victorian State Forest. Yep. So that was what he was here to do for a few years. And um, he decided to stay on and then spent the rest of his life devoting his entire life to uh, the forest and eucalypts. They call him a true man of the trees, which I rather liked. All right, so Mm -hmm. what were you doing? What was your eucalypt project? So my eucalypt project was to create a eucalyptus colour map of Australia through natural dyes and then, you know, seeing what colours they produced and then comparing them, you know, because Australia has all climates. It's the tropical, the the snow in the south, you know, the desert and everything in between. So, And are there eucalypts all across the yes, continent? Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. I had been using local eucalypts, you know, at the bottom of Mount Majura in Canberra, where I live. But this is also, you know, for, for the listeners, I'm sure that everybody has seen uh, eucalypts at some stage, but they, they've just not thought about it because for the past, you know, since colonization, uh, eucalypts have been exported around the world. In Brazil, now they have a huge production. India and, and Spain, I know that they have eucalypts, but also lots of uh, native Australian plants because the hardwoods, they grow really fast. And for furniture, for musical instruments, sporting equipment, things like that, you know, that uh, see these are the things like coming back to and, you know, my role is to connect and talk about such things now that you never even knew that, yeah, this baseball bat was made out of a, a eucalypt or this table, you know, mm. or, or that, that bouquet because the eucalypt, I think it's Cruciana and Cinerea, and the polyanthemus, because of their pretty heart-shaped leaves, you know, that they're grown in greenhouses and they're in beautiful bouquets that, see, we don't Mm. even think about. There's something, isn't there, extraordinary about connecting with a plant Mm -hmm. or an animal in its natural habitat. And I think that's really what this conversation is going to be about because it is so special, isn't it, when you finally understand the interconnected whole, and we were Mm -hmm. talking about that before we pressed record, that to go out there and see... Where do these things grow and how do they live in symbiosis with all the things around them, right? Yeah, so uh, with the eucalypts, you know, back to your question before, I think it was only or mostly the Tasmanian bluegum eucalyptus globulus that I had been using plus the cinerea and uh, the, the brittle gum. So they were the few and... So then, you know, when this fellowship came about, I thought, oh, I'll apply. That'll be a fantastic opportunity to go and explore the eucalypts uh, across the country. And they are really quite incredible trees. You know, there are over 900 species. They they grow in the snow, you know, snow gum, um, eucalyptus porciflora. They grow in the desert and even in the rainforest, but each of them produces a different colour. You can actually extract colours from every single part of the tree, the bark, the twigs, 
the flowers, the fruits, which people call the gum nuts. But I collected uh, the colours from the leaves, both fresh and dried. You can store them for years and you can still get colour out of them. In natural dyeing throughout history, people would store dried materials. I don't know, coconut husk, fruit pods like, you know, walnut husk. Uh, What are those things that the chipmunks eat? Uh, (laughs) Chestnuts? Yeah. No, no, no. Is it chestnuts? It's not. It's acorns. Acorns. Yes. (laughs) Yes. People collect acorns. So you can, yeah, have them, you know, for when they're out of season. It's a whole world of wonder, one which I think most people don't really know about. It used to be the only way that we dyed or found colours for textiles, of course. But since the advent of synthetic dyes, which would have been around actually... A hundred years ago? Yeah. But... But Claire, it's not only for textiles, it's for leather, you know, acacia. That's how leather used to be tanned and wood staining the lacquer, you know, with, yeah, whatever they could find out in nature. You used what you had access to. I feel like the thing people tend to believe is that you need synthetics for vibrancy Mm -hmm. and that nature delivers you only subtlety. But actually, you were showing me a picture before of a lobster that you found in the Northern Territory. Where, where oh, were you in, in Broome? Yes. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah, the, the rainbow Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the colours in nature are obviously extremely vivid depending on where you look. Yes. But we've got extraordinary things here, right? Yes, yes. But even down to the bark of a tree. Mm-hmm. But coming back to that idea of does nature deliver you only subtle colours when it comes to textiles? No, see, that that's the myth. And that's also, I think, back to the mass production of everything. And, you know, that's where I think that it, it started when we wanted everything like now. And with dyes, they're, they're seasonal. And the synthetics, you know, that's where it replaces. It's like, all right, I want green or I want blue, but I can't get this out of season. So then it's like, all right, we've, we use synthetics, then we can have blue or pink all year round. And the natural dyes, it, it's also not time consuming, but it, it's a lot of work to get that consistency. Mm-hmm. We're greedy, uh, yes. aren't we? We're yes. greedy, we want everything when we want it all at once. Mm-hmm. You came before with a lovely bag full of vegetables grown mm-hmm. in your garden which is something you always do thank you very much yes so nice but seasonality is something I think people understand more when it comes to food and connecting with Mm -hmm. or just being more sustainable when it comes to what you choose to eat but you can relate that to to dyes as well right yes or to clothing and what's available to be produced that's right Mm -hmm. yes so if we're gonna work towards a more sustainable future You know, it goes back to working and eating things that are seasonal because, yeah, you know, in this day and age, we can get fruits, vegetables, things all year round. But then, you know, where have they come from? It doesn't mean we should. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about patience, isn't it? Mm -hmm. We're impatient. Yes, humans, we are impatient. But, you know, this year I've learned a lot from Mother Nature and that she is patient and if you wait long enough you know you'll see this beautiful incredible flower in bloom or this little creature that you know emerges from its 
cocoon, but also that when we abandon places, Mother Nature, she claims it back. The trees grow back, you know, through that abandoned house or, yeah. Tell us some more things about what you learned when you were on your travels. At each location, I met with Aboriginal elders, you know, to pay my respects to, or on country, to hear their stories about their ancestors and uh, what plants and animals and things that were sacred to their people and the land. And for me, this is very similar to my own, you know, cultural background of Lao, where, uh, you know, my grandparents were just peasant rice farmers and you had to take care of the land because if you didn't, you know, you wouldn't have rice and that's your survival. That's your food for the next six months, you know, for the wet season or the dry season and the making because uh, if you didn't make your own clothes, your own furniture, my grandpa built the house that they lived in with his own hands, you know. Yeah, you didn't have You stuff. didn't have it? Yeah. And, but um, actually mm-hmm. that is such a thing, isn't it, to hold in our minds for a minute. Mm-hmm. If you didn't make your clothes, you didn't have any. Yes. So, yeah, making your own clothing and your blankets and things like that, there are lots of similarities, you know, between the two cultures. But I suppose that's with a lot of cultures before Industrial Revolution where you had to make, everybody made their own clothes or their own furniture, equipment, like in in Europe, um, everybody has their own traditions of making. Mm -hmm. How important was it in your project to include Indigenous voices? Extremely important, a huge part. So when, when I sat down, you know, to write the application, I thought, I can do this but it has to be with the utmost respect for the land, a genuine sense of, you know, respect for culture and traditional knowledge. I said to you before, are you going to write a book? You're like, why? No, that's not why I did it. I wanted to go and see for myself the eucalypts in their natural habitat because it's different to seeing them in the botanical gardens or elsewhere. I'm using my cultural heritage, you know, the Lao weaving and dyeing techniques to, you know, produce colours with native Australian plants. And then, of course, at each location, meeting with the elders and the traditional owners of that particular part of the country. Like, yeah, I thought that would be so fascinating. And that that story hasn't really been shared or, or told before so I wanted to make that connection. Is it also about your own identity as an Australian who's got a Lao background but who's had kids here who it's about bringing two things together maybe? Yeah there were so many so many aspects and facets that I I wanted to bring and the stories to tell but mostly it's about all the goodness of being Australian you know, that it's a multicultural place and that I was born in Laos and I arrived in Australia as refugees and, you know, we've got three languages in our house of, you know, Norwegian, Lao and English. 
all the goodness with being what it means to be Australian. And that's like, you know, my, my Lao cultural heritage, but mixed with the Australian. I wanted to use that and also, yeah, to show and, and share the beauty of, you know, mixing the cultural uh, traditions of craft, cuisine and community. I've always had a fascination with uh, native plants, particularly the, the edible, because that's my real interest and passion, that trees and plants that are edible and for medicinal purposes that also produce colour. I wanted to ask about a particular Instagram post that really struck me. It was about your time spent in Cairns and visiting and working with an Indigenous artist. Her name is Susan Race. Mm -hmm. And you wrote about being up there and feeling a connection with the tropical. It's tropical up there in Cairns. Mm -hmm. But then you said this beautiful thing about how when you would visit nature or use things from nature, you would thank them and there was this spiritual element. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yes. Well, firstly, Claire, yeah, that was, uh, Cairns was an, an experience. My bags didn't arrive and I had a workshop. There were two workshops and that was with Susan and her sisters. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, what do I do? And of course, you always have to think on your toes. And I looked down and I thought, oh, I'm wearing linen trousers, linen pants. Everything was from basic, you know, the Australian label, and it's not cheap either. And then I had a wool cardigan and a felt wool scarf because I'd come from uh, winter to Cairns. And I thought, oh, if it doesn't arrive, I'm going to sacrifice the basics. Yes. Yes. And I did. I cut up all of my clothes. No way. Yes. For my students. So I literally gave them the clothes off my back. (laughs) And uh, before that, I had to walk over to Kmart and buy cheap shorts and, (laughs) and, and, and shirt, which now I will, I use them as pajamas. But that was an incredible week with Susan. They took me out to the rainforest to show me all the the native plants that were sacred to that part of the country, but to their people, mob. And um, yes, when you take something, you always say some sort of prayer to the nature gods. And in Laos, they do something similar, like they're they're animus. You know, they believe in the the spirits in the woods and the trees that, yeah, before before you cross a river, you say a prayer to Mother Nature. Then you hop in your canoe and you cross and then, you know, it won't wobble and you won't fall into the river. The fruit will be ripe and juicy and things like that. So yeah, it was so similar to mm-hmm. being out in a village in, in Laos because um, that's where I learnt all my dyeing techniques uh, from the villages in Laos all those years ago. So know. tell us about that. You came here as a child, as a refugee. When you mm-hmm. went back for the first time mm-hmm. in 2002, yep. you were working for UNESCO? UNESCO. UNICEF. I was uh, a scriptwriter and a translator for UNICEF, and I did volunteer work for Save the Children and Care around that time. And how old were you? Uh, 25. Right. 
And so yeah. that was the first time you'd returned? Uh, that was the second, just by, by chance, you know. Were you quite connected to no, your Lao culture growing up? No. Not at all, because we, or I, arrived in Australia as a refugee. I was two, just with my parents. My mother is the second eldest child, but the oldest girl, so she didn't go to school. So, you know, for Asian parents, education is the key out of poverty. And so, you know, coming to Australia, like there's free education and healthcare. So they worked hard to make sure, you know, my sisters and I um, had a good education so that we'd go to uni. So they sacrificed for that. And uh, of course, growing up, we just wanted to be white. We just wanted to be Australian. So there wasn't really much interest in, you know, Lao culture or history at all. And it wasn't really talked about at home. Do you think that broke your parents' hearts or do you think that they were... No, you know, they're Buddhists and it's like, okay, you know, it's sad. And of course, you know, my father was a soldier during the war and that's why, you know, we had to flee because he he was part of the Royal Army that sided with the Americans and... um it's like, okay, now we have this second chance in Take this it. new country mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and all the opportunities that, you know, they never had. So what was it like then to go back there and have these very different experiences? Because that's when you went and visited hilltop tribes. Yes. Uh, which is not where you came no. from. No. So, well, that was part of working for UNICEF, going to remote villages where there was no running water or electricity. And that was like the first time it hit me that, wow, what a privilege it was to grow up in Australia, you know. And what if I was here? Then I'd be that little girl who doesn't have any shoes or almost any clothes, hardly any food. And I wanted to do something to to give back. But yeah, thinking about how privileged I was. Was it serendipitous that you ended up there with that role or did you seek it out and go, I want to go? No, it was just a serendipitous moment that somehow, you know, I landed back. Mm -hmm. Okay, tell us about the weaving then, because this is where you learned Mm -hmm. about the importance of weaving. Yeah, so, you know, in, in those villages, right up, you know, far south or north in the mountainous regions of Laos where the hill tribes uh, lived. There was no electricity or running water and after work there wasn't anything to do, right, four o'clock and it's like, okay, what do I do? And so I'd roam. Then I saw these women weaving underneath, you know, wooden houses and I thought, oh, that's so beautiful. And so, yeah, I asked one of them, oh, can you teach me how to weave? And she said, okay, but it was from scratch, Claire. So she made me go out to the field and we collected the cotton. And then I had to hand spin that cotton into thread. Yeah, and then uh, we'd have to go out and collect flowers or or bark to dye that cotton. And then uh, once that was done to count all the threads that was going to be, you know, put through the warp of the loom and then sit there and weave. And I remember that uh, if I didn't pay attention when I was, 
you know, warping the thread. That's the vertical and the weft is the horizontal. If I didn't pay attention, I'd have a hole in my fabric and then I'd have to, you know, it's like knitting, undo it all and then, you know, do, do it again. And it was like three months, I think it took to weave two meters of fabric that I made into a skirt. And it was like, I did this all by myself. And I thought that was pretty incredible. And that was also one of the first moments where I thought, this is how clothing was was made, you know, and how now we're, we're disconnected from that. But also that was the start of fast fashion. And luckily... Oh, that era. Yeah, yeah. that early 2000s, that, that came to Australia. I think in Europe they had, you know, H&M and Zara and everything else already top shop but in Australia it wasn't accessible. That's still, that's yeah. still around the time when it accelerated. Yeah and the phones as well and then so on that side that's what was happening in the western world and then so in Laos and you know Southeast Asia it was the other side of now young people not wanting to do this craft anymore. They wanted the phones and the blue jeans and you know everything that the western kids had. So it was like, oh, like for me standing, you know, at that point where it's like looking at things from, from both sides and it's like, how can I change this? How can I balance this? You know, that, that this is such a beautiful tradition that's lost. And if we all learnt to weave fabric, if we all had to, to, to make our own clothes, I think we wouldn't be so wasteful and that, you know, everything has a story as to why. And for me, this is why I do everything that I do, because I'm always interested in the why. Why, why does that happen? Why does, is that woven that way? Or yeah, it's that being curious uh, about everything. You saw an opportunity to potentially provide some work for young women who might otherwise not have it. Do you want to talk about yes, the foundation? Yes, so, you know, all, all these moments, learning the weaving and seeing all the incredible textile traditions of the hill tribe, you know, the, the indigo and the mong skirts and the embroidery, the applique, the jewellery that is so incredible and steeped in hundreds or thousands of years of, of history that the couture houses in Europe, they, they copy, they've copied these little bits of jewellery or, or patterns or pleating techniques, you know, that are now being lost in this generation. But also the fact that these hill tribes, they've been pushed out of China for political reasons. And then at the same time, when they go to the big cities, they are looked down upon because of the way they look or their skin colour. And I thought, that's such a shame. That beautiful tradition of silver jewellery making or that embroidery, it's being lost. And it's like, how can I do something about that? And so then, you know, after my three years with UNICEF, I thought, oh, and, you know, I spoke to my weaving master, Casey, and she had a store that sold antique clothing from these hill tribes and, and pieces. And it's like each month or each year, there would be less and less because 
those traditions are being abandoned and all these young people are flocking to the cities. So I met Casey Supat Misay and she has been my weaving teacher and master since 2002. So I had these women who taught me to weave while I was in the villages. But when I came back to Vientiane City, just by chance, I went to the ethnic markets and I was interested in hill tribe textile craft because I wanted to understand about its history, you know, about why things were done a certain way. And yeah, she had a store. See, young people were leaving the villages in droves to find work in garment factories in Thailand or abroad. So now there's that problem of only the elderly and the young. So the grandparents are looking after the babies while the parents, the the young parents are in the cities. But isn't it interesting, and I haven't actually heard that before, but it must happen elsewhere too, that actually the opportunity in inverted commas is in garment factories. So it's also connected to fast fashion. Yes. Companies like Diesel and, and Nike were setting up garment factories and... In Laos or in Cambodia? Uh, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, but there were a few. in. There, there's not that many in Laos, but there was diesel, I know. And of course, for the young people, it's much more prestigious to work in a garment factory than, you know, to, to be weaving or, or making because that's seen as a poor person's labour and it's heartbreaking, And I thought, oh, this is tragic. How can I change this perspective? And I don't know if it would work, but uh, I would do my best. So, yeah, at the end of the three years with Casey, and she is a real, really incredible and remarkable lady with her own history. So her mother and grandmother was also a master weaver. And during the Vietnam War, that's when, you know, Casey learned to weave when she could walk, when she was about four. And they were weaving underground in tunnels during the war, cloth, blankets. And then, you know, during the night, they would go up and exchange it, you know, for goods. So yeah, that was that's her story of, you know, weaving as a young girl in the 60s. So you set up something called East and West. Yes. In Vientiane. Yes. So we with Casey and I, we had a talk about I wanted to keep ties with Laos somehow, but I didn't want it political. I wanted it to be practical, you know, to make beautiful things and create stories, you know, for an international market. And um, yeah, so it was through uh, weaving and making cloth in contemporary design. So that's how we started. That was in 2004. So yes, the Eastern Wef Weaving House is a weaving studio and a boarding house where young girls, they're mostly of ethnic minority hill tribes and orphans, they have a place to live and work and create beautiful textiles that go to Japan, Australia, Italy, and they get paid very well. It's 18 years ago since we started. So yeah, it was a little shack 
And, you know, over the years it's been up and down, but, you know, we've managed to keep it going. And now we have a farm and yeah, it's almost like a Noah's Ark. It's self-sufficient where we've got fruit, vegetables, we grow stuff. And during COVID, it fed hundreds of people. Did it? Yes. Because we, we have hundreds of banana trees, bamboo, papaya, everything, animals. You're also presumably growing plants that you can use yes. for a natural diet. Yes, that's right. So yeah, it's a self-sufficient place. You told me a story once years and years ago about how a French fashion house came calling. Yeah, so uh, was that early 2006? That was a year after, you know, we ha- were established. Um, Laos being a former French colony, the, the French Ministry of Culture went around to all the different weaving houses and said they were looking for people to work with, to collaborate on pieces for an exhibition. So they sent a designer called Frederic Molinac, who came from Jean-Paul Gaultier and with a few others with all their designs. And yeah, we sat together and uh, we produced 12 pieces, haute couture style, so that they were made from scratch. We had to go out, you know, harvest the cotton, do the dyeing and the spinning. And so they were there to sit beside us weaving. And sometimes if it wasn't to their liking, we had to undo 10 centimetres, which took the whole day. And then the the pieces were made into garments and it told the story of globalisation. So that was what it was all about. Mm-hmm. Good on Gautier. Yes. So um, I was going to ask you, like, how much interest is there from established fashion? Oh, they're there all the time. I also asked you, did they give credit? And you said in this case, yes, absolutely. It was a good thing. Uh, yes, they did give credit and we were invited to the exhibition opening. And then I went to Paris that year as well. And the Branley Museum uh, was opened that year. That's the Museum of Civilization, where, you know, they've collected thousands of artifacts and pieces from, you know, the colonies over 200 years. Which is a problem? Uh, I mean, a questionable? Uh, yes. Yes, of course. You know. I mean, it's, it's interesting, this question about giving credit, because mm-hmm. I think you can't disentangle the colonial history, but mm-hmm. we don't have space to explore that yep. one here. Mm-hmm. But I, I did just want to raise the fact that sometimes these brands do not give credit to yep. the artisans who make their incredible work. And yes, they pay them, but they don't acknowledge that that's who did it. And I think mm-hmm. that's really important that we're actually acknowledging it's these are the makers. Yes. And I think Bandana talks about this in her ep- episode, which we'll share a link to about Dries van Noten being one of the only luxury designers who had consistently said, we make in India, we make here. These mm-hmm. are the people who did this embellishment, this embroidery. Yep. But mm-hmm. most of them, they don't do it. They go, I won't say who, but they just yep. say... It's the house oh, of... inspired. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yes, that's the other thing. When designers take inspiration or, you know, they're inspired by these groups and they don't acknowledge... Uh, yeah, that that is a problem because it's just say the case of, of, of Laos. There is, with each ethnic or cultural or, or minority hill tribe, each piece of embroidery or or colour 
that that they use, that has significant meaning to those people. Well, it made me think about what you'd said about being in Cairns mm-hmm. and the acknowledgement of what's spiritual to mm-hmm. people yes. around them. Mm-hmm. But also the stories of their culture that yeah, are woven so into this stuff. Yeah, you can't just right. copy it's their, it and steal yeah, it. <laughs> it's their cultural identity in a way that the designer from Europe is not respecting or understanding. They're already being politically persecuted in their own country. And to take these designs without the acknowledgement or the story behind it is real. Yeah, it's mm. an insult. Mm. Yeah. How do you think that craft can connect us in unspoken ways? I was thinking about this, that there's so many difficult conversations we have to have to reckon with colonial history and to try to reset relationships. But how do you think craft and textiles and dyes and all these processes can help us communicate without us having to talk? For me, it's that craft, cuisine and culture. And that's the they're the three things that that I use. And that's how I was able to go to France, that craft and the cuisine and the culture. We had those things in common. They were interested in the, the culture and the tradition. And for me, yeah, everywhere I go, this is what I'm always about. Maybe mm-hmm. it is about what's in common. Yes. Because so much of this is about the division that underpins the history and that's causes disadvantage in the future Mm -hmm. but actually there is this commonality isn't there between like maybe it's simpler I know you can't take away the complexity of all of that stuff you can't and you shouldn't but 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 there is something simple in the middle isn't there yes and see art is all about that craft like natural dyeing oh how did you learn that and okay so that's our first point of connection and everybody has to eat so that's the cuisine side of things and Claire, one of the best things about multiculturalism or in Australia is multiculturalism because without that, the food would be quite rubbish here, right? So we think about that side of things. Of course, that's funny, but everybody needs clothing and there's so many different ways of how, you know, a piece of garment is made and then, you know, that's the exchanging of how where it was made, what materials, whether it be flax in in Europe for linen, organic cotton, silk, wool. Traditionally, it's the same, collecting, spinning it into a yarn that is then going to be weavable. So I look for those things and, yeah, find the connection. We've only just come to the end of this year-long experience that you had with the eucalypts, Mm -hmm. but what... So maybe it'll take you a year to think about what the big lesson is, but what do you think you've learned from it? Uh, I, I stood out one day, you know, in, in the field, in the Stirling Ranges in Western Australia, but also when I was up in Broome and looking out to the horizon and I thought just seeing the beauty in every place that, that I've been, but like in the news... There's so much negativity, but most people in this world are good and kind, and I experienced that. And so I got to experience the hospitality and the kindness of Australians, but also to see the the beauty of Australia. There's beauty in every corner of the earth if we look for it, but the outback, it's this raw 
beauty that doesn't exist elsewhere. And so nature and the goodness of people, that's, yeah, for me, that's what I got out of it. And um, so I look forward to finalizing, you know, the three and a half thousand (laughs) samples and then putting it all together. And then in the end, it's going to be a public database so that, yeah, everybody will have access to my color map. And I hope that they will like what I've done. Ah, that's so beautiful. I'm sure that they will. This has been so nice. Thank you very much. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you.